By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is part two of our scratch golf discussion. So if you haven't listened to part one, I'd suggest going back and listening to that episode first. This episode of The Sweet Spot is brought to you by our friends at the Indoor Golf Shop. They are the place to go online for setting up a simulator in your home or business. They've got all the major brands of simulators and launch monitors like Foresight, Skytrack, Unicore, and Flightscope. And they've also got their own lines of enclosures, screens, hitting mats, and just about anything else you need for your indoor studio. On top of that, they're always available to talk to you. You can reach out and call up their experts directly, ask for Gerald or Hunter. They can help you make a decision based on your budget, the size of your studio, and other needs you might have. So thanks a lot for their support, and be sure to check them out at shopindoorgolf.com. And without further ado, we are going to pick up right where we left off with our scratch golf discussion. All right. So, you know, we've covered a lot here. I think we're potentially in part two. We talked about how reasonable of a goal is this, some of the stats, how much time it takes. We talked a little philosophically about mindset on the course. I know you've got some other bullet points on your list. So so what else do you want to talk about here? I think that mindset segue came from identifying areas of weakness. And we talked about how looking at your strokes gained is okay. It doesn't necessarily tell you why. So you've got to look at the impact factors as well and then any influences on that. And then once you've figured out where your weaknesses are, you work directly on those, obviously. I mean, it sounds obvious, but so many golfers don't. I mean, there's so many out there who are simply just working on some random thing in their swing or some random thing that they think is going to make them better that doesn't relate to their stats or or the reason why they're not scratch. 
Yeah. In the context of becoming a scratch golfer, like I don't think you can have any like major, what I would call like holes in your game, which sometimes might be obvious to people and sometimes they're not. So I think, yeah, doing that analysis, those different layers of analysis, which you're describing is very important. I don't think I understood for a long time, like how the tee shots were costing me and like me laying back off the tee, like that wasn't all making sense to me. Looking at the stats and figuring out the practice ideas and all that stuff helped me solve that problem, at least for now. It's not solved forever, but yeah, that's super important. And you've got to keep in mind, once you've found out what areas of weakness are yours, you've got to keep in mind the return on time invested. Because some things, if you spend an hour of practicing, are going to give you more of a return than others. So say, for example, I know that if I did an hour a week of speed training over the course of a year, I might gain 10 yards. I should gain 10 yards with that. And that's going to equate to, what's that, 0.7 of a shot in terms of strokes gained? Something like that. At your level, it would probably be worth like a half a stroke to maybe, yeah, I don't know if it'd be a full stroke, but somewhere around there. It'd be, it'd be significant to someone at your level. Well, it's 0.1 of a shot every 20 yards, right? So I just used half of that, 0.5 of a shot times 14 is 0.7 of a shot. But that's one thing. Whereas if I just worked on, you know, hitting the ball better, I might not see as great a return on time invested because I'm already at a certain point with my my striking skills, And for me at the moment, I know that actually where I'm going to gain the most benefit is playing skills because I know my striking is okay, generally. My short game or or stuff like that is pretty decent. But if I just played a little bit more and got used to club selection and being more aware of picking better targets, and I mean, club selection is a big one for me. And just understanding when when the ball's slightly above my feet, you know, how much is this? How much do I have to adjust for this? Those are all the things that I've lost through not playing a lot. Yeah, or even judging like your lies and the rough around the green, and how you know how you're going to adjust exactly. your technique a little bit, which is technically skill. Like I tell people, like I need to play a continuous amount to keep that. And if I don't, if I don't play for three weeks, I can tell immediately. I just step on the course and I'm not as comfortable. I can feel it. Yeah. So if I say I have three areas, right? I could gain 10 yards through speed training. I could work on hitting the ball better because yeah, while I'm okay at the moment, I'm not at my best. I know that. Or I could work on my playing skills and say all of those had equal strokes gain values. You know, I could gain 0.7 of a shot in every single one of those. I know that the playing one would be the best return on time invested because it would take me less time to improve that skill. So uh, there's all these different elements, but working out where, which one's going to give you the best return on time investment is, is important thing for the regular listener because they don't have a lot of time. Getting back to all these Twitter questions, I'd say 80% of them were were about time because people are busy. They have jobs. They have families. They have all these commitments. And (laughs) for all of us psychopaths pursuing golf, especially the ones with, with scratch aspirations, like that does not align well with a lot of people's lives. So I don't want to be dismissive of people and discourage them, but it just might not be a reasonable goal for a lot of people because of the time element. But, you know, for the golfers who are like close to it, you know, what you're talking about is is doing that smart analysis of where their time is best spent. You could be spinning your wheels, sitting there working on six footers on the green when you're driving the ball all over the place. And, you know, that's 
I don't want to say you're wasting your time, but you're not using it efficiently. Well, the guy I played with yesterday, the three handicap, who was pretty good. If you asked him, what do you think you need to do to get scratch? I guarantee you he would have said something like, I need to get my hips to do this and the club to come down in the slot a little bit more. And I'm looking at that thinking, that's got a greater likelihood of making you worse right now. Because I can see the reason why he was moving (laughs) like he was is because of his body, because of how his physical nature is. You know, men tend to be stronger in the midriff and less flexible, so they're more likely to have a certain move. It would take him so long to change what he thinks would make him scratch. And even then, it wouldn't make him scratch. Whereas I would look at that player as a coach. I would say, well, actually, he had four shots a day that were just bad strategies. They weren't even bad shots. Like one of them, he he hit towards a tucked pin and he missed it by like five yards and it bounced into a bunker. And I asked him, where were you aiming there? And he said, I was aiming at the pin. And I told him where I would aim. Looked like I was an alien. And so bad strategies, club selections, he could gain a little bit of distance. Those were the low-hanging fruits for him. So he was he's basically looking in the complete wrong area. He's still a player who thinks there's some kind of swing secret out there that's going to get him down to, to that scratch. Whereas he hit it well enough to do that already. I've been around low handicaps where I would say if they just got their like temper and expectations under control, they can yeah, be scratched yeah. quite easily. Like I can't tell you how many skilled golfers I've been around who have all the tools, but they just go wild. And again, I've been there, trust me, I've had my temper issues on the course where they're expecting so much out of themselves. And that's why I wanted to start the episode off with some of the stats and the double bogey talk and the birdie talk, because you know they're thinking that when they tee off, like I got to make five birdies today. And it's like, no, I think the median golfer on the PGA Tour averages three and a half birdies around. And usually the best player all year is around like 4.75 to five birdies around. And then I get golfers telling me like, oh yeah, I average six birdies around. I'm like, come on, <laughs> that's just not true. So yeah, I think the low hanging fruit is different for each player. I've got a little story here of a player recently. He was a good player, but his pattern was everything was from the heel. And so he would have Mm -hmm. a lot of really good rounds when it was slightly heely. But he would have that day where he'd wake up and he would shift just a few millimeters more towards the heel. Yeah, it was like 10 millimeters. And he would have days (laughs) where he just, he thought something major has changed. And we looked at it on quad, the difference between his good and his bad shots. It was about a five millimeter difference in strike. And it was more towards the heel. And so he started clipping the shank. And so all we did for him was I explained how to move the strike across the face. We went through a few drills. They're all in the strike plan. He moved the strike more towards center and completely eliminated the shank from his game. At least in the last 10 rounds, he hasn't had any. While that hasn't lowered his handicap, it has reduced his scoring average because his higher scores now, which don't go into the top eight of the handicap system, but his higher scores, which used to be much higher, are now reduced because of that shank reduction. Yeah, I mean, that player reminds me of myself with my swing path. I'm on the edge of uh, disaster, so to speak. So, you know, the days where I was hooking it too much were the days I'd be shooting a lot more over par, and I just had to learn how to reduce that. I still have that tendency, but I've made it less extreme over the years. And I think that's what, whether it's scratch golf, better golf, whatever you want to call it is is really reducing the extremes in a lot of people's games. And a lot of people don't know what those extremes are, like you said. It, you know, for someone like that, luckily, it was just a small little adjustment in strike location. 
that's not that big of a deal. You don't need to be videoing your swing, <laughs> getting a hundred lessons for that. That is a a conscious skill that you can improve with the right information. That's a huge thing, the conscious skill part, because and, and again, that's the number one reason I think why I don't need as much practice is because of those conscious skills. As I said, if I wake up and I'm hitting it awful, I number one know what it is. I'm not lost, like, oh my God, what please <laughs> whatever deity tell me what's happening here i know exactly what's going on at impact and i can rectify it now can i rectify it in the right amount that's the bit that's going to take the practice but i i've got those first two mental skills there whereas you can have another player who requires loads and loads of practice to maintain the same level because they're doing it all unconsciously you know, and, and if they take a long break, they completely lose that because things shift around when you take a break. They can't recalibrate it. So, yeah, these conscious skills, the awareness and the ability to adjust greatly reduce your need for practice. So what else do we have on your list? Well, talking about time invested, just kind of finishing that, I know we mentioned that it takes maybe about 4,000 hours minimum. I would say, and that, that requires a lot of other things to be in place, but 4,000 hours minimum to get down to something like scratch. I feel like I've put my 10,000 oh, hours too, in over yeah. the last 25 years. I mean, and I'm not, and I'm not pro. Yeah, exactly. And there's, <laughs> you know, this is why I don't like that 1% compounded thing, you know, oh, just get 1% better every day and it compounds. That's not how it works in real life. When you're in a skill game like golf, or any sport really, the amount of effort you need to do to improve by 1% actually increases a lot more, gets harder. Yeah, eventually you start hitting yeah. the wall. We'll get back to your point real quickly, but for a lot of people, like maybe we can finish this up with like, should you even do it? Is like, I don't want people to like get unhappy with the pursuit and the numbers. Like, if you get obsessed with like reaching a certain handicap level, I think some people might be setting themselves up for disaster. Like I don't have any handicap goals. I did not have a scratch handicap goal. I just do a lot of the things that we talk about on this show and it kind of happened. Like those are positive habits and I've been through a lot of stupid mistakes to get there and still learning. I remember my journey, you know, started with a 30 handicap and I thought, well, if I can get down to 15, I'll be in the junior team, then I'll be happy. And I very quickly, within a year, got down to 15. And what happens? You go, oh, well, if I just get down to uh, 10, if I, if I get down to nine, I'm a single-figure handicap. Then I'll be really happy. Within you know another six months, I'm down to nine. And I'm like, well, if I just get down to six, I'll be the best junior at the course. It's the hedonic treadmill. <laughs> exactly. The horse and the carrot. Yeah, we got to start our other episode on our uh, financial advice. <laughs> yeah. That's a, we, we, we joked about that on Twitter. But yeah, that that's... That is the cycle that you set yourself up for because I don't think about it too much, but like, yeah, maybe this is the best golf I'm ever going to play in my life. And as I age, naturally, like I'm going to start losing my distance and skills and I won't score as well. And like, I don't want to be, you know, I'm 38 now. I don't want to be at 58, like hating the game because I'm a four handicap. I still want to be enjoying it as much as I do now. My enjoyment now is I do love playing the tournaments. I just like playing. I enjoy playing golf, whether it's for fun or for tournaments. I don't play for my handicap. I look at it and I am proud of it, but it's not my primary driver in this game. 
yeah, I, I play completely for fun now. That's why I just go around the local courses and don't tell anybody who I am. Just turn up. I meet people. You're like undercover boss. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Everybody asks me, like, what <laughs> handicap are you? And I'm oh, I don't have a handicap. I'm okay, but I don't have a You know handicap. what you should do <laughs> since you live in Vegas? You should be like hustling people. No, no, I can't do that. <laughs> I'm well, I told you I've had that one guy who, what was it, the fifth hole. He's like, by the way, I know who you are. So what, what do you mean? I know your voice. <laughs> the, I know I'm like, oh, okay. sweet spot listeners are out there. Ah, shit, there's pressure on me now. <laughs> I love going out without any pressure. You know, the moment if someone knows who I am, there's pressure. I just don't enjoy that. I play okay with it, but I just don't enjoy the game as much with that. I feel like you, don't, you talk about like fear and anxiety and all those emotions. Like when, when people... Again, I don't mean to sound conceited here, but it's what happens. Like if people like invite me to their club or something like that, I've had listeners of the show invite me to their club and like people who know, you know, I can play the way I do. And they're like, oh, you know, we're bringing the scratch guy with us. And then they're like, ooh, what's he going to do? And I'm like, I'm not going to do anything that exceptional. Like I'm just going to like go out here and play. Like maybe I'm going to make a few birdies that might look routine to you or I might play a few really crappy holes and you're like is this guy scratch so you know it goes both ways like a lot of people get nervous when they play with a scratch player but like you know we get you know nervous just the same of like trying to live up to that expectation because what a lot of people think it is it's really not i'd say that's a huge downside of getting down to scratch is is your expectation of yourself goes up to the point it's hard to be happy and also the expectations others have of you as well. You know, when I go out, if I were to say, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm, I'm Adam Young. I have this book. I have this website. I'm a golf instructor. Then instantly they say, oh, you're going to hit every shot perfect. Or at least that's what's going off in their head. And if the first one I do blast it right, they they might say something or and I, I suppose that goes down, down to ego. I shouldn't really care about that. But you're human. It does affect you as a person. Yeah, we're humans. Yeah, we all want to be loved and liked. Yeah, you know? especially me. Just <laughs> love me, please. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's that's what I found is that the better handicap I had, the less happy I was with myself until I made it a conscious decision to say, right, I'm playing golf for fun now. I'm not doing it for yeah. competition. I'm not doing it to get my handicap lower. I'm doing it for little daily wins for myself. And if I have a good round, I'll take the enjoyment. But I'm out there to meet people and have fun, you know, hit some bombs out there. And if I screw up, if I shoot five over par, I don't care. If I shoot four under par, it's a win. I'm trying to make this win-win for myself. Yeah, I would say the most miserable I was when I was like a mid-single digit handicap. And a lot of people refer to that as kind of the purgatory zone because you know you're capable of shooting these great rounds but you're also capable of shooting like an 85 or something like that so you're kind of stuck between two different worlds and i would say like to your point when i stopped caring as much about the result and the score you know something funny happened i played better Mm -hmm. not to say that i don't care of course i do i keep track of my scores I, i usually know where i am relative to par it's kind of hard to forget it completely but my primary driving force is, I mean, obviously I do practical golf for a living and I'm trying to have these experiences to give better advice, but I just love playing freaking golf. I just love being out there. I get as excited to play on a Saturday morning. Like when I know I'm playing golf on a Saturday morning and my wife's like, yeah, you can, you know, I got young kids, so we are often busy. And she's like, yeah, go play this weekend. You know, Friday night, I'm just as excited to wake up and play as I was when I was a 14-year-old. Yeah, I'm getting there. Yeah, I don't approach it as like, oh, I got to shoot 68 tomorrow or I'm not going to be happy. Like, 
that hamster wheel is is super damaging and not fun and you know sometimes i get stuck on it like i think i was last year i struggled a lot with my game in tournaments and i was starting to get a little maybe bitter and unhappy for a while there and i had to kind of reset myself so it's not something i've completely solved but i'm getting a, a little more wisdom on it yeah playing competitive golf for me almost made me dread golf you know i'd wake up for a tournament day or something and i'd just be like oh god there's if you shoot a good score it's okay but if you shoot a bad score it just really really hurts you where now when i'm playing just for fun you know i get up and like you said i'm like a kid at christmas i'm like oh i get to go out and play with no pressure at all today you know if i shoot a bad round it's fine no one knows anything but if i shoot a good round it's going to make me feel better about myself We've had the request for tournament golf for a long time, and we're going to do that one separately. But I have a lot of thoughts on that, and like my own experience and watching other tournament players, it's certainly not for everyone, and you need to have the right attitude about it. So let's table that discussion. Just on the, on the topic of focus, you know, if I am in tournament golf, my scoring range narrows. So you know, I I don't shoot really low if I was playing in a tournament because. It's almost like this internal thing that stops me do that. But also the increase in focus stops me shooting too high. So I was always very consistent as a tournament golfer. Whereas now when I'm more free with my game, I can shoot much lower, but I can also shoot much much higher as well. It's uh, it's an interesting one, but maybe for another time we can go deeper into that. I really want to do that episode because a lot of people you know, are thinking about playing tournaments, want to know what it's like, and you know, I have a lot of thoughts on that. So yeah, we'll, we'll definitely do a whole episode on that at some point. What else is on the list, Adam? I was just going to say with the 4,000 hours that I talked about, it does depend how many years that's done over as well. Because I'm sure there's some guys in their 70s who are like, well, I've done 10,000 hours and I'm still off a 20 handicap. Well, yeah, if you've done that over 30 years, that's very different to doing 4,000 hours over three years, where it's very intense. And this is actually interesting because it goes against a lot of the motor learning research, which is more on short term. Learning research says that if you spread out practice sessions the same amount of time, it's more beneficial to spread it out. But I suppose there's a bell curve there, whereas if that practice is spread out too long, you reduce the effect of that. So there needs to be some level of intensity to your practice. And that's why, you know, if you're just doing one hour a week of practice and you're off a 20 handicap, I think the goal of being scratch is not one for you. When you talk about the golfer who says, you know, I put all this work in and I'm not getting better, you and me have a lot of thoughts on practice. Uh, You wrote a great book on it, obviously, and I have my own thoughts. But, you know, I always refer to it as like these golfers stuck in these zombie range sessions where they just, they show up. And I've done this before too. I did it a lot in my teenage years where you just kind of, you go through it. You're not really engaged. You're not picking targets properly. You're not consciously working on anything. Don't have a goal. Yeah. You don't have a goal. And you fall into this trap by like, oh, I'm I'm just checking off the box of showing up. Like that works very well in other parts of life. Like for example, I'm at my desk right now and I have this habit tracker in front of me where I'm trying to cross off these daily habits of writing my book doing my speed training. Well, not every day, but certain times a week, lifting weights. I need this in front of me or else I fall off track. And I know that if I spend the 30 minutes doing the speed training or lifting weights, like that is going to be, you know, I'm, I'm doing the right kind of work. It's it's more straightforward results. Whereas some people fall into the trap of they think, oh, I just show up to the range for 45 minutes. I'm going to get better. Yeah. 
You could get worse. You ask them what they're working on. Oh, I'm working on my irons. <laughs> Be more specific. Like, what? what is that? You're just hitting irons? Okay. I mean, you can improve with that for sure, but there becomes a point where you need something more specific. I'm working on my face strike. Okay, cool. What are you doing? Well, I'm working on moving it from heel to toe. Okay, perfect. Right. That is a, that is a very specific goal. Are you quantifying it to take it to the next level? But if you're just like, oh, I'm just working on my driver. That's not going to cut it, unfortunately, especially if you want to get a scratch. That might get you from 30 to 20, but it's not going to get you from 20 to scratch. Yeah, it needs to be a lot more, I don't know, I don't like to use the word intense because I don't want it to make it sound like it's not fun, it's but it's certainly more more efficient, you know, mindful and optimal are words I like to use because that indicates you're, you're spending your time wisely. Because someone like me, I get bored. I don't like practicing for long periods of time. Like I'll show up to the course and try and work on my short game and and work specifically on it. But after 20 or 30 minutes, like I'm not someone who could spend like hours and hours practicing at the facility. I'd rather be playing or even like when I'm, you know, now that we're doing our simulator games together and competing on these online tournaments, like that's been awesome for me because it's competitive, it's fun and it's great practice. So, you know, I'm not someone who grinds for hours and hours and hours at the range. I try and get in and out of there as efficiently as I can. Yeah. What's next? Thank you for all the Twitter responses. We really got a great engagement yeah, on this. We love our Twitter fans. We do. And we even love the criticism too. This is like, I would classify this as mild criticism, but when I put out the question like, hey, me and Adam are going to record an episode on what it takes to become a scratch golfer. This guy writes back, my only request is that Adam does not, and not is in capital letters, go off on the percentage variance tangents for scratch players. There is no real world application for listeners. Yeah. No, that's a good and point. I, I te- that's a good point. It is, well, I, I texted this to you in jest, and your response was, well, I've got nothing else to contribute to the conversation. <laughs> and I wrote back to you, I'm like, we're going to talk about this for four hours. I'm not worried about that. Um, but yeah, I think there's, we don't have to harp on the impact stuff because we do talk about that in a lot of episodes but you know when i think about when someone asks me like what did you need to do to become a scratch golfer usually my answer to them now is it's like i just learned to control where the face of the club is pointing much better yeah because you already got that, pretty much strike down as well so. yeah my strike was okay it was fine it hasn't gotten that much better over the years but what did i eliminate by narrowing where my club face is pointing at impact for starters it removed the big miss off the tee not to say i don't have big misses off the tee but i I don't have as many of them because my club face is not pointing too far to the left or right and in addition to that i've improved the relationship of where my club face is pointing with my wacky swing path i've been able to work on both of those but if i don't have club face control i'm not a scratch golfer not a chance that's the one for me aside from strike location and ground contact on approach play because you know approach play is so important like that's the one for me where i'm like you got to have control of that club face and awareness of it and work on it because that is how you you know we talk about double bogey avoidance that's a lot of how you miss get rid of those lost balls you know missing a lot of greens left and right it's important but you have your own thoughts too but that that's the one that screams out for me on impact fundamentals well i'll try and tie this into some of the last podcast we had or was it a couple ago where we talked about launch monitors because people are practicing on them now they get these numbers and they say well what does this mean what am i looking for here i get all the time you know what's what's a good path or you'd look at path variance or something and you know when i see very good golfers i'm talking probably plus figure handicaps 
the variance of path is probably half a degree standard deviation. It doesn't have to be any path number in particular. You know, you could be plus or minus four degrees. You could swing four degrees left, four degrees right. Or what What are you even? You're a plus figure handicap and you're, what, seven degrees into out? I can get as bad as seven with my irons. Yeah. I saw it the other day. With driver now, I've gotten to one or two or three. So I've learned to neutralize the driver very well. Hitting up on that helps that because of D-plane. Yep, absolutely. I don't know if you agree with most instructors, but I see like most instructors don't want their students outside of like a six path. That's a number I've always heard. Yeah, well, that's where I goaded you a bit, right? Where you said you were seven degrees in to out, and I said, "Dude, that's that's when I'm trying to hook a ball around a tree." Yeah, it, <laughs> it's, that. yeah, I'm I'm certainly an outlier. There's no question, and I don't think I'm seven all the time because I'm thinking like on the course, I'm like I'm not seeing this big hook anymore. Funny enough, I was actually toe down in my quads session the other day. Is that interesting to you? Yeah, well, I'm toe down a little bit as well, and I, I want I yeah, want to go more toe down. You. I'm trying to. Yeah, I, I was I was surprised at how toe down I was, but you know, Woody was like, "We're not changing that because you're playing well with your irons." Yeah, yeah. But when I'm looking at launch monitor numbers, I don't know if you've got the full numbers of yours, but say say to hit a green in regulation laterally, it probably takes about a four or five degree face window. So you, you, you've got maybe two and a half degrees left or two and a half degrees right where you can present the face to hit that green. And it does depend on different clubs, but that's something you could look at with a launch monitor. You know, just check that your face is staying within a five degree window or so. Most of the time, not all of the time, you know, maybe 70% of the time for a good player. With a driver, to hit a fairway, you know, a 30 yard fairway, you're looking about three degree window. Or, you know, if we're playing on bigger fairways, maybe a four degree window. So again, players are only doing that, what, 50% of the time, scratch golfers, hidden fairways. Is that right? Yeah, that's a huge takeaway for people, I hope, is that they're not surgeons off the tee. I bet there are scratch golfers who average 65, 70% off the tee, but it's not a prerequisite because we also have, you know, distance and avoiding big trouble. You can have someone who hits a ton of fairways, but they only drive at 230 compared to the golfer who hits at 300 and hits 40 fairways, but is as good at avoiding trouble. And they'll be better off the tee in terms of a strokes gained analysis. For me off the tee, it's it's mostly like not eliminating the big miss, mitigating it and keeping it in play so that you have a clear path to the green on your second shot, whether that's in the fairway or the rough. We're going to take a quick break here and we will be right back. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. 
Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweetspot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweetspot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweetspot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, even something, some kind of analysis that I do with launch monitors is when those big misses do occur, I look at what caused it. And in many cases, you know, I'll take, take myself as an example. If I have a big miss, it's not being caused by a, a drastic change in the club face presentation with the driver, at least. It's been caused by a toe or heel gearing. So if I have a big right miss, I've hit the heel which is rare for me. And if I overcook it to the left, it's usually been more of a toe shot. It's rare that it's a face presentation thing. So that, you know, helps if you're looking at your your big misses, it helps to be able to identify and dig into what's causing that. So you're fixing the right things. So that's your real world application for that. I think for most people, like as much as learning about all the launch monitors and what it takes to hit functional ball flights, it's a lot of it's just avoiding extremes when you're thinking of that stuff. If you're a golfer who hits their driver five degrees down and then you're 12 degrees out to in, that's not going to fly. You ain't, play, <laughs> you ain't playing scratch golf with those matchups. Like You need to figure out a way to get that path less extreme and hit more up on it because you're going to be hitting these spinny oh especially you know, with the driver yeah I yeah you're, you're gonna be about hitting with an iron then oh well that yeah i mean that's, it's, it's tough it's an extreme for an for an iron but it's very extreme for a driver yeah it's hard because i always switch between like anecdotal and then rest of players like i think most players have a better chance of becoming scratch like if they were swinging one two three degrees out to in or into out and controlling the face and hitting these like tight little fades and draws versus someone like me who's like right on the edge of spin rates and club path on the edge of like being dangerous i would say you have a better chance not doing what i do but i do some things around impact and maybe have some hand-eye coordination stuff that allows me to do that i don't know for sure because i can't see inside my brain and all that stuff it's just what i do and i'm comfortable with it but yeah i think the big thing is avoiding extremes especially with impact because you remember i was looking for it before this episode Ping had released, I'm sure you've seen this, where it was like a heat map of impact location. It was like an animated image of, it went from like pro 
And yeah, I've like, got it in one of my blogs. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's slow. I've seen it on Twitter a bunch of times. It's always very cool. But like, you know, they're showing the heat map of impact location. I think it was on a driver or it could have been an iron. I guess it's irrelevant. But as the handicap went up from pro to scratch to 5, 10, 20 handicap, that heat map across the club face naturally got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because better golfers are just better at striking it on the face. It's important for iron play and it's really important for your tee game as well because you've got gear effect to deal with. Yeah, that's the point of face strike, the numbers, if you've got these on launch monitor. And it varies. I mean, clubs are more forgiving these days. So strike is, I suppose, less important, at least to heel to toe, than it used to be. But still, even with the modern day clubs being so forgiving, I still see the same patterns with good players. They're all functional. At least 99% of their shots are functional. So they don't hit toe shanks or heel shots. But yes, yeah, so 99% of the time, it's, it's all functional. And I would see patterns that they all fall within seven millimeters either side of, of center. So you're not seeing many scratch players or true good scratch players hitting outside of seven millimeters from the center that often. They exist, but they're outliers. It's on like whether I'm using the, the foot spray on my irons or driver when I'm practicing or even when I was on the quad the other day with Woody and we were seeing my impact location. Like it wasn't like my tendencies to go a little bit low towards the heel, but yeah, it's a very small shift, especially with the clubs I'm used to. When I started trying out other clubs, it started moving around because I had different weights and center of gravities to deal with. But on my own set, it's very rare I hit it on the toe. It almost yeah. like never happens for me or at least when i've tracked it i'm sure it can happen on the course from time to time i'll see like that i actually don't mind hitting that high slightly toe shot on the the driver sometimes but i think other than club face presentation yeah that and like strike location for me are like 1a and one like i you know for some players one might be more important than the other but those are just like prerequisites for scratch golf yeah, well, these numbers I'm giving are in a, an environment that is very static. They're going to get yep. a little bit wilder on the course, but you can still say that most players are at this level in the static environment. And then obviously, if it gets really bad on the course, you'd have to look at, well, why is that happening? But yeah, I would say seven millimeters either side of center as an average. So, you know, you can still hit some big ones outside of that. But usually this is probably a more important stat the standard deviation of face strike is around about four millimeters or less, four or five millimeters or, or less. So, you know, they're very consistent with their strike is what, what I'm saying there. And you can get this data on TrackMan and Quad now. Well, when you think about when we go back to the stats I was talking about earlier, especially with iron shots, you know, one of the reasons why scratch golfers aren't missing the green short, you know, that was the big differentiator in terms of directional misses. It's because... A lot, not all of it, but a lot of it is strike location. Obviously, there's smart target and club selection plays a factor and ground contact, like they're not chunking it or thinning it, but they're making really good contact on the face and allowing the club to do what it's designed to do, have the right ball speed, launch angle, and spin rate to get it on the green and not miss on the short side. Yeah, and consistent ones as well. You know, there are some players, I know know that People have brought up some pros who say, well, this pro always hits it slightly out of the heel. Um, and look at it. And it's like, yeah, but it's very, not very by consistent. Much, yeah. It's not by much for a start. And it's very, very consistent. Yeah. And I've heard pros say that they're not flushing it on every shot. 
myself, like I don't flush every iron shot I hit. Like a lot of them are like probably slightly to the heel, but not by much. I could feel it. Yeah, but the definition of a flush shot can be different as well. I've had amateurs who are like 10 handicap and they and I'm watching them and I'm seeing the numbers say like 15 millimeters toe, 10 millimeters toe. And I'm saying, how's how's that strike feel to you? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. And I'm like, if I go five millimeters off the toe, it feels horrible to me. Yeah, it's different tolerances, which makes sense. Yeah, different expectations or, or what you expect of yourself and what you feel is a good shot. Sometimes, I mean, things can just slip and you get used to the feeling of a 10 millimeter off the toe and you think that's average until you bring it back to center again and they go, wow, that felt so flush. I haven't felt that in a while. I'm like, yeah, you don't need to change those clubs. They're fine for you. You just need to find that sweet spot again. But yeah, so I'd say seven millimeters average either side and about a four or five standard millimeter standard deviation if you're using launch monitors. If you're not, just spray the face and look for it to be very, very consistent. I wouldn't say I spray the face on every practice session, but I check in from time to time to make sure that, you know, my feels are matching up with where I think I struck it and where I actually did. Like I, I always try and do that at least once a week or every two weeks just to make sure that that was a heel strike that was low and okay, I can make that adjustment, especially with the driver. I feel very confident of the millisecond of impact. I could feel what I did, but that requires constant checkups. I mean, if you want to get inside the brain of a scratch golfer, that's what I'm doing. And consistency is probably the bigger predictor of a player's success, consistency of face strike, but it's not the only thing. It has to be functional as well. So for example, if I'm having a bad day initially in my warm-up with face strike, my consistency will go down because I'll start to consciously calibrate that. So sometimes I see higher standard deviations with my face strike, but that's okay because I know, well, I'm trying to move that. It's a toe by a strike and I'm trying to move it more towards the heel. So therefore it is going to be less consistent. But once it's in the place that I want, then, you know, lots of practice is going to make that standard deviation lower. It's going to make that consistency better. So we have to, you know, be functional first and then more consistent after, even though consistency is probably a bigger predictor. It just depends on, on a bunch of stuff. But anyway, speed, speed. What do we say about 260 yards you need? to be off for a decent scratch. Yeah, I think you're probably looking at a high 90s swing speed. Yeah, I'd to say be optimized yeah. to be as efficient as possible with the driver like yeah, you could get away with 96, 97, 98 miles an hour, but that means you're striking it on the center of their face, you're hitting up on it, you're doing everything you can to maximize distance whereas if you can get to that 100, 105 level, well then you've got some room to not do all those things perfectly and still hit it 250, 260. I would say that 100 miles an hour would kind of be like a line in the sand for scratch level. Again, of course, are there scratch golfers of a 90 mile per hour swing? Absolutely. It's just harder to do that. If you've got 100 mile an hour, the average golfer is probably going to hit it about 240, something like that. What's the potential with 100 mile an hour? You could potentially carry yeah, it to 260 and roll, yeah. you know, roll it out to 270 or so. It's going to be a high ball flight, so it might not roll too much. Which is, you know, kind of where I am as well. So it's it's definitely possible. I'd say a hundred. I would look at that to be a true scratch player. If you're lower than that, it's going to be much tougher to get down to scratch. And the swing speed also not only does it make the game easier from the tee shot perspective and leading to better proximity on your approach shots, but it certainly pays more dividends in the 
iron game as well. So if you are in a difficult lie in the rough, if you have more swing speed, that's going to enable you to kind of like muscle the ball out of there. You know, thinking back to when Tiger first came out on the scene and people watching him hit those long irons out of the thick rough that were like towering in the air. That was just brute strength and swing speed. Of course, I don't expect people to perform like Tiger out of the rough in his heyday, but that is one advantage of speed. And another, I would say, is that for a lot of golfers, it'll allow them to hit the ball potentially higher and have a better you know, descent angle into the green so they can hold them. So I think it's a little bit of an advantage there as well. I'm careful when I talk about swing speed because golfers watching the PGA Tour we're seeing what Bryson's doing and a lot of these college players going through these extreme training methods. And, and we don't advocate that here, obviously, because we know all of you don't have that kind of time. We certainly go back to the episode with Mike Carroll from Fit for Golf. He talked about some reasonable things you could do fitness-wise. We've talked about like super speed golf and the speed sticks. You know, those are things you can spend 60 minutes a week total and get to that 100 mile an hour level. I think that's within reach for a lot of players. Yeah, definitely. With all else being equal, you're also going to hit a seven iron more accurate than a five iron. Just you know, if you're hitting the same distance, if if your seven iron goes one seventy or your five iron goes one seventy, that seven iron is going to be more accurate because because of the higher spin loft. So there's another advantage of of speed. You could almost quantify. I'm sure I could go down the math route and quantify how much an extra club or two of speed can uh, improve your proximity and therefore strokes gained. It's a skill that you know. You and me keep talking about impact fundamentals on every episode: club path, face angle, attack angle, ground contact, all these things. But the one that I think for a long time got discarded was swing speed because. We just kind of assumed it was like a fixed thing, like, oh, it is what it is. And one of the reasons why regular golfers have not seen an increase in distance, you know, there's still the average golfer is driving in around 230 is because they can't generate the swing speed necessary. And that there's a number of reasons for that. A lot of it is, you know, we live sedentary lives. We just don't have the physical capability for it. So I now view swing speed as a skill no different than you know, getting better at your wedge play around the green or speed control with your putter. It's something that can be worked on and changed. And for me, the extra benefit is that a lot of these things will improve your health and quality of life as well. If you start lifting some weights and doing some of the other training that can get your swing speed up, there's some nice cardio in there and strength training. So that's one of the the skills I've focused on the last few years, and it's been incredibly fun for me. Well, when I get the time and energy and my body's in shape, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that myself as well. I'll try and document it. I'm always so frightened of documenting it and not improving, not for myself, but for, for the makers of the devices, the swing speeds, because I I don't respond that well to uh, certain things to do with strength and power. Just do it privately. Don't tell us about it, and then six yeah. months from now, I'd be like, "Hey, I'm swinging 115. How's it going?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, the other thing that you mentioned that I haven't gone through is ground contact, so a huge thing as well. Ground contact's like such a such a such a big deal. <laughs> yeah, you could probably say this is the biggest predictor of of a player's ability to get down to scratches. You know, I I would say that a player on a normal lie, you know, a ball's got a little bit of cushion underneath it. 
that player is going to strike an inch either side of the ball 95% of the time. So, you know, their worst shot is going to be start maybe an inch fat. Their worst shot the other side might be an inch in front of the ball, which would be, you know, a little bit thin, a pro thin. But it's not going to be outside of that range very often at all. That's a huge thing. On the divot board, if you have the divot board, because it's a tighter lie, you might see a little bit bigger dispersion there. Yeah, I've noticed on the divot board that I almost never, I can literally count on my hand how many times I've truly fatted a ball on the course because that's not my miss with ground contact. But the divot board does pick up a little like rum, you know, because I'm coming in probably a little shallow is that it's picking up a little bit of that initial ground contact. It's functional ground contact in real life, but it might pick up on that. So yeah, that that's an important point to make if you're training with the divot board, which you and I both love. Well, yeah, if you if you are three, say you hit one personally, three inches behind and you're coming in very, very shallow. On real turf, that would probably just graze the grass first, which isn't classed as a fat shot. You know, grazing the grass is absolutely fine. No, it's fine. okay. Yeah. And then it would hit the ball and then it would deflect downwards and there'd be a divot after. So that's why you don't, you get more fat shots on the divot board than you do in real life. Now that is not a knock on the divot board. The divot board is actually really, is perfect for highlighting any slight errors. Yep. You know, so if it comes up, say you hit an inch fat on the course, it might come up an inch to three inch, depending on how shallow you are on the divot board. Yeah. Getting back to my extreme scenario, like if you're the guy, if you're starting to see it six, eight inches behind the thing on the divot board, now you can see what the problem is. It's a very clear feedback. Exactly. And when mistakes get highlighted, that actually encourages you consciously or even your nervous system unconsciously to to make more of a change, make more of an improvement. So one of the ways I used to highlight that before the divot board is place people in sand and just say, right, just Stay there and practice until you can hit ball first and get this ball out of the out of the fairway bunker. So, you know, if you hit an inch fat in a fairway bunker, it goes nowhere. Whereas if you hit an inch fat on the on grass, it's still you get a decent amount of distance out of it. So it really encourages you in the bunker then to go, Oh, I can't I gotta be really precise with this. And then your entire body starts to self-organize towards that goal. So Divot board or hitting out fairway bunkers, both excellent for really highlighting and improving, refining ground strike because it demands more of you. The opposite end of the spectrum, practicing on range mats, you can get away with more on a range mat. Range mats ruined me for ruined me for a really long time. Exactly. It can make you worse practicing on a range mat if you are not aware of what's happened. Now, if you are aware that, oh, I hit that one an inch behind, two inches behind, then range mats are not as disastrous for your practice as, as it sounds like. But even, I'll be honest, even on my own level where I've got all this awareness, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, if I spend too long practicing on my range mat, my ground contact gets loose. Let's just say that. So I have to do some practice on the divot board to really hone in again on it. So ground contact, probably the biggest predictor of getting down to scratch, I would say secondary to speed, because that's going to be your limiter. I sent out a tweet the other day where I said, I can usually tell who the best players on the on the range are not by, I mean, yeah, you want to look at their ball flights, but just by hearing what's going on, especially on a grass driving range, you can just hear it, who the golfers, and I guess that's a combination of impact and ground contact. Like you can hear the golfers who are not making that crisp contact with the ground or the club face much differently than when you hear that skilled golfer. I think back to this moment I had, I 
was invited down to this tournament in Bermuda where there's some really good players and Matt Parziali, who is a U.S. Mid-Am champion. He was a kind of a big story. I think it was five or six years ago. He was a firefighter from Massachusetts. It was a very cool story. He won the U.S. Mid-Am, so he got to play in the Masters and the U.S. Open where he actually made the cut at Shinnecock. But he was there. And I didn't know what he looked like, but when I showed up to that driving range, which was like a really sandy surface in Bermuda next to the ocean, I knew who he was immediately because I could hear it. I'm like, that's him <laughs> because everyone else was clunking the ball off this like super sandy driving range that was exaggerating your, your ground strike misses. You always can notice it with the great, great ball strikers that their ground contact is impeccable. Yeah. Practice ground contact, guys. I'm just going to backtrack a tiny bit to the face that we talked about, the face windows. I'm not going to give any more numbers. I said the real world applications for face direction numbers. To look for your big misses when they are occurring. Is it a face change or is it strike change? And also, when you're practicing then, you could use Google Earth. I showed in an Instagram post how I did this. I use Google Earth and there's a measuring tool on it, just a, a ruler, and you can click on one spot and click on another, and it tells you the distance between those objects. And so I used to go to the driving range and just track between, you know, between this flag and this flag, how many yards is it? And so what I did is I mapped out, so I've got, okay, there's 40 yards between these two flags, there's 60 yards between these two flags, there's 20 yards between these. And so I've got all these different targets that I can use. And so I'd say, you know, simulate the course when you're on the range. If you can pick a 40-yard target, which is a pretty wide fairway, but it's pretty common for amateur courses. And if you can hit that 50% of the time, then that's about scratch level, right? 50, 60% of the time on a 40-yard fairway is, is very good. And then I know Scott Fawcett uses, what is it, like a 60-yard fairway, 60-yard area, and trying to get 90% within that? Yeah, I'd say most elite amateurs, and I would consider a scratch golfer, obviously an elite amateur or a professional, like depending on how far they hit it, if they're you know hitting it you know, 260, 270 more, yeah, you've got to keep it between a 60 to 70-yard dispersion to play good golf. Because once you start getting outside of that zone, Scott kind of figured out that a lot of course designs are, of course, formulaic. And when you get outside of that dispersion window, that's when you start losing too many strokes off the tee without a bounds and, and penalty areas. That 60, 70 yard window, you know, some golfers, it might be 50 yards with their driver, which is excellent. But yeah, you've got about 60 or 70 yards to play with. And, and certainly using the Google Earth trick on the driving range, that's, you know, talking about being smart and analytical in your practice is a, is a great tactic to use. Yeah. And then with irons, if you're hitting a 7-9, say 150, 170, something like that, I usually use a 20-yard target, 10 yards either side. And I would say if you can get it within that about 50% of the time, that's typically what I would see scratch players do. That is better than what you would do on the course. I'm talking about static environments. You're going to be worse on the course than that generally because there are more factors involved. But if in practice you can get half of your shots within a 20-yard target, that's pretty decent. That's pretty good. Oh, man. I, uh, I'm i assuming you're a curb. Yeah, a yeah. Curb, uh, oh, yeah. The, Glad the you got seasons. it there. Yeah, well, I, listen, I'm a curb fanatic, but we let, maybe we can do a curb episode. Did we satisfy the uh, the Twitter? <laughs> I, I hope so. I hope I gave real world examples of that. But it's, it's a good point. You know, I, I do. I am very numbers oriented. I'm the type of guy you can just speak to me in binary code and I'd be happy. But I know not everybody is that way inclined. So it was a fair comment. We're not trying to pick on you. So 
I love how in our text exchange, you were like, that's all I'm going to have to. <laughs> yeah, and here we are <laughs> two hours to... later. And we're actually well, I think we're way to... over two hours. Yeah. We're well into our second episode here. We, we talked ourselves blue in the face on this topic as we like to do. And if you made it this far, we appreciate it. We appreciate all of our hardcore listeners who soak up all of our conversations here. We've discussed a lot of things. I think, you know, one of the, I don't want to end this on a sour note, but I at least want to just say one more thing about like, as someone who's been on both sides of the coin, not a scratch golfer and a scratch golfer. It's like when my handicap went to zero, which I think was three or four years ago, I forget when exactly it happened. Like nothing magical happened in my life. Yeah. Maybe I sent out a tweet bragging about it, but it's not like some golf god like arrived at my door and was like, here is your platinum tablet. You know, congratulations <laughs> on reaching the top of the mountain. Like nothing like that occurred. Like I guess it was a proud moment, but I didn't set out to become a scratch golfer. I guess it happened through the years of, of work I've put in. But I wouldn't I don't want people to pursue it just for the sake of the number. For two reasons. One is that hamster wheel that Adam was was mentioning earlier in the episode where like you get down to zero, then you're like, oh, well, how do I get to a plus three? And you're like, well, that's, you know, you might be setting yourself up for being stuck on that treadmill or hamster wheel where nothing's ever good enough for you. And then I guess the other point I would like to make is that, you know, let's say you were starting off as a 10, 15, 20 handicap and you're like, well, I want to get to scratch. Like, I'll choose my words carefully here. Like, I I just don't know if that's a realistic goal. Like people have done it and they've done it quickly. I I would say that they were outliers. I would say it would be more healthy and rational to commit to more habits, like the ones we always talk about this on the show, whether it's smarter practice habits, strategy, mental game. Those are the things that I think can enrich your golf game. But then again, I don't want to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the chasing scratch guys are popping up into my head again because I love their movement and I love what they've done. Like, it's just absolutely awesome. I love uh, seeing all the engagement they got and all the people who showed up for their their tournament, which, you know, I kind of feel bad they didn't send us an invite. We got to play a match with them or something like in the future. That'd be great on YouTube. But um, yeah, I just don't want people like getting stuck in a scenario where they're like, that's my goal. And if I don't get there, I'm not going to be happy with it. It's great. Don't want to talk out of both sides of my mouth. I'm proud to be a scratch golfer. I probably won't be down the road at some point, but it's just a number. Like you can enjoy the game in so many different ways. But, you know, I hope we gave you some reasonable expectations of what it takes to get there in this episode, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions on how to get there. And that are the misconceptions that hold people back from getting back down to a five or 10 handicap. I think it's a universal misconception about golf in general and what it takes to get better. I've got a little summary here. Are we ready to wrap this up? We're doing our closing statements here. This is it. We're not going on for another 20 minutes. Yeah. So I just got a bullet point list of things. This is a nice one for people to look at or listen to rather and say, all right, which areas could I improve the most? I've actually bolded some of the ones that I think are more enduring the things that say, for example, allow me to be scratched with much less practice than most people would would need. So, I mean, distance is one of the biggest things, right? You can't play scratch if you hit it 220. Well, I, can't, I don't want to say can't, but you get the idea. Accuracy, I think, is overrated. Yes, you want to make sure you don't hit out of bounds. That's strategy more than accuracy, though. You want to make sure that you're not hitting it absolutely everywhere. But I think accuracy, lots of people, once they reach a certain amount of time practice, they're pretty 
decent left to right accuracy. It's just that long to short, right? So it's the big three. It's ground, ground strike and face strike are the huge ones. Then for you, it was face direction was was a big thing. So I, sh I shouldn't say accuracy is not important, but just avoiding huge outliers in any of those big three. You cannot have extremes. Yeah, and then that goes into the other things as well. You want to make sure, okay, your, is your path really extreme? Uh, so yes, you can play good golf. You can play scratch golf with an extreme path, but it's just it just makes it more difficult. If you make up for it with other skills, then great. But you rarely see a player who's 10 degrees out to in or in to out playing scratch golf. It happens, but it, it's rare. Same with angle attack and loft as well. You don't want to see extremes of those. If someone's hitting 10 degrees down, even with an iron, it's quite rare to see them play scratch you don't see players hit up on it and play scratch unless your name's john sherman and you're playing off nice fluffy lies <laughs> i'm going to correct my statement because on my seven iron i was hitting about two to three down with it oh so nice I think I, I, nice. yeah there it kind go. of verified what i was thinking on the golf course that I, I had shifted that pattern over the last couple of years well unless you're playing off fluffy lies or you have godlike arc height control then you're hitting up on it is is it not no, a good idea i think on i think what happened with the hitting up on it is that it was happening in certain testing environments like at pete's golf they have that fiber built mat you know that fluffy lie Oh, so, yeah, okay. so I think I would hit up on my irons on that thing because I was so scared of like I hate I don't like that mat for some reason. It like, doesn't encourage hitting down on it. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it. Doesn't. it so I, I think a lot of those readings were kind of like a little off. But in this last session, it was what I'd expected that I do, I do hit down on it with my irons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So obviously keeping within normal ranges of those things with loft as well. Obviously you need to, it's okay to flight the ball low. It's okay to hit the ball higher, but you don't want to be too extreme with that because that's usually a sign of something else going wrong, which will inhibit your ability. Good strategy. That's one of the first enduring things. You know, if you've got a good strategy, that doesn't take a lot of practice. That's more of a mental skill, right? It, it, obviously, the more you practice on the course, putting this good strategy into play, the better you become at it. But generally, a good strategy is always going to be there. Good club selection as well, again, can get refined through practice. But usually, that's more of a mental skill that's there or it's not. Great understanding of environment, you know, that's a huge thing as well. So you, your understanding of wind and how it's going to affect the ball, the lie, whether the ball's up above your feet, below your feet, uphill, downhill. Good players are able to compute a lot of this data uh, very quickly and it comes out as a kind of gut instinct. That's kind of the thing that's missing from me right now. So I'd say lots more playing is is where I can improve that. Mental issues as well. This is one I wouldn't say is enduring. So, you know, if you've got one bad shot and it unravels, that can be enduring, actually. You know, if you are more mentally stable, is that politically correct? You know, if you're, you can hit a few bad shots and you're still okay with yourself. So that can be an enduring thing. But yeah, you're a little bit more stoic. You're a little more in control of yeah. your emotions, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, being nervous or being fearful of a certain result. That fear for me is something that comes and goes. It's something that has to be kind of practiced and monitored for me to take control of that. Awareness, that's an enduring thing as well. So it doesn't matter whether I'm practicing one hour a week or a hundred hours a week. I'm going to have a, a good awareness of what happened. And that just comes from my teaching skills. I know where I've struck it. I know why that ball's gone left. I know where my ground contact's been. And then your ability to consciously change those variables are huge as well. That, again, gets refined with practice, obviously, but there is an enduring element. If I had 
no practice for the next three years, I can still move my strike from toe to heel because it's a, it's a skill that I practiced early on. It's always going to be there. Having a pitching system, so that kind of clock system, that's an enduring thing as well. You don't require a lot of practice once that's there. It greatly reduces your need to practice to control distance. Having a practice system as well, that requires more practice <laughs> to have a practice system, but you can tell how good someone is often by how they practice, right? If you stood on a range for an hour, there would be one guy stand behind the ball, line up, walk in, do his practice swing and hit a shot, right? The rest is just going to be in ball beating mode. And if you walk over to that one guy, I bet you he's off at least single figures, if not scratch. Or he's a sweet spot lessener. Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. You can fake it till he makes it. I'm almost at the end of my list. Adaptability. You're just like giving the greatest hits of golf here. Like you're literally, <laughs> you're giving away every single secret of the game here in under three yeah. minutes. Like well, you should be charging for this. These could all be podcasts within themselves. Adaptability. I've just kind of talked about that. Adjustability. So I suppose ability to shape out of trouble is a big thing as well. So while good players tend to be more safe with, you know, we're going to chip out more often, whereas a high handicap is going to take on a shot they shouldn't. Good players also have the ability to take on that shot that they shouldn't and, and do it more often. You know, I can, for example, hook a ball 40 yards, 50, 60 yards oh, around am, a tree. I am world class at that shot. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot do it in the opposite direction. So we can shape it high and low and out, out of trouble. So we have more options available to us. We can make the best of a bad situation while at the same time having that other thing of we don't get too greedy with these things. We know what we can do versus what the shot demands and we can get that risk reward balanced nicely. Yeah. That's an interesting point, like on the recovery situation. Like I was stuck in the trees on a par five and I was confident I could clear the tree. So I took my sand wedge and I just kind of did like an early release. I didn't do my shaft lean thing and I just added more loft to the club and I hit it over the tree. I was confident that I had the skill to adjust my technique, which is, you know, kind of our definition of skill, that I could pull that off and, and not skull it into the tree well that's it that's the other thing is knowing when to do that okay yeah. you might have the ability to shape it around a tree or hit it high and over it but if you tried to do that and you were on a bare lie i bet you would say oh no this is not the time to do that oh kenny loggins is coming in my head the gambler <laughs> <laughs> i was just hearing that on a movie last night obviously i agree with everything adam just said and we'll, we'll break that as out into 100 future episodes for all of you Obviously, it's difficult to become a scratch golfer. That's why it's, you know, 1% of it. I don't think it's the mountaintop of golf. I think the mountaintop of golf is when your expectations and skill level can match up and you can enjoy yourself and have fun at this game. So I don't want people to think that you're going to magically become this happy, fulfilled person if you became a scratch golfer. It's just not true. No different than someone if they got $50 million in their bank account tomorrow they might become miserable. So you just don't know in these with these things in life. You know, the stats are important knowing that, you know, distance is important, double bogey avoidance is important. It's not a birdie fest. So hopefully we managed everyone's expectations out there. And that's about it for me. If you're someone who's knocking on the door, maybe under a 5 handicap, maybe you'll get there one day if you keep listening to this show. <laughs> um and we can help sharpen up some of those skills and decisions you're making on the course. I think it's better within reach for those players. And, you know, maybe someone who's further down the line, I think it's more about, you know, the habits and the expectations versus focusing on a handicap level or a score. It's, you know, the process and not the results thing, which I know is cliched, but 
that's how I've arrived at all of this now that I've been through both sides of it. So that's kind of my my closing statement. Yeah. I would say my last sentence is you, you've got to be just polished in all of those areas or you can't have a glaring weakness in any of those areas because that one glaring weakness, you know, even if it's just you've got poor awareness of what's happened, that's going to stop you get to a scratch handicap. You could have the skill, the ability, you could be really good in all the other areas. And if you just don't have awareness, that could, that could completely destroy your ability. Well, there we have it. What you thought was going to be one of our shortest episodes turned yeah. into, I think, we hours, between, three between, hours. Oh, yeah. This is, uh, if you made it this far, I mean, wow. <laughs> Congratulations. Adam, where can they find you? AdamYoungGolf.com. John, where can they find you? You can find me at practical-golf.com. And thanks again to the sponsor of The Sweet Spot, the Indoor Golf Shop. You can find them for all your indoor golf needs at their website, which is shopindoorgolf.com. They are the experts when it comes to the best indoor golf simulator for your home or business. You can call them up directly, talk to their guys, Brian and Wade. I know a few of you have already spoken with them and gotten help. They can help you find the right launch monitor for your budget and all the other stuff that you're going to need, like enclosures, mats, nets, even the right projector. They can help you with all that. So huge thanks to them for their support. And you can find them at shopindoorgolf.com. And as always, thank you to all the listeners who make it this far into the episodes. We appreciate your questions, your feedback. Keep it coming. And we will be back next week with another episode. And subscribe. And subscribe.